You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible with you, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 is where we'll start this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. You will find uh, stacks of Bibles. In fact, on those tables in the back of the room, you can take one now. or on your way out of worship this morning. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you're willing and able, in honor of the reading of God's Word. We do this because we believe this book is different from all others. We believe this is God's Word, and God is speaking life into our congregation here and now. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions." And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain, Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And then Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his own brother Abel and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have just started this series called Deathly Devices in which we're looking at the so-called seven deadly sins better called the seven capital vices. A list of vices like this one has circulated since at least the 4th century, as early as a man named Evagrius. Evagrius of Pontus was a desert father. He escaped into the desert in order to escape from the wiles of the world, and he became a part of this monastic community. And it's interesting that in this monastic community, there in the desert, with the intention of of getting a deeper experience of God, what these men found was a a greater awareness of their own sin. These capital vices have become, throughout the centuries, known as the source vices. Picture an ominous tree with a thick trunk and seven main branches. Each branch represents one of the capital vices, and from each branch grows many lesser, smaller branches. The image itself, rightly so, communicates that if you want to deal with the sin in your life, if you want to deal with the vice in your life, then you must cut off each of the main branches, and you must take an axe to the trunk of the tree. What are these seven so-called deadly sins, the seven capital vices? Vainglory, envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, 
gluttony, and lust. This list will serve as the outline for our series. And each week we'll travel essentially the same path. Each talk will have three parts. First, we'll conduct an anatomy of the vice itself. We'll ask, what does God's word teach us about this vice, its power, its dangers? See, naming the disease is the first step. We must understand these vices, otherwise we'll never see them in our own hearts and lives. We must name the disease first, see it. But then secondly, we'll consider how our devices cultivate the vice. Now this is what will make our series unique. Lists like this have circulated, like I said, since at least the 4th century. What makes our day uniquely challenging is that we have on our person, virtually every second of the day, a device with great power, including the power to cultivate the vices. We have in our pockets a portal that can carry us to countless evil places. See, Evagrius in the 4th century, he had sinful tendencies in his heart, no doubt. We have sinful tendencies in our hearts and an almost omnipresent technology with the power to incite those sinful tendencies, to incite those vices. It's like being an alcoholic who lives in a bar. Not for a moment can we let down our guards. So we'll look each week at how our devices bring out these vices within us. And then third and finally, we'll seek to develop spiritual practices that will counter the vice's power. Now since we kicked off this series last Sunday, many of you have come to me saying how much you appreciate the fact that we're going to do this series, how much you especially appreciate that we're talking about technology within the larger context of spiritual formation. You've said things like, I need this series. My children need this series. But others of you are perhaps not quite as convinced that this is important. Others of you, I suspect, are a little more defensive of your devices. And maybe you've even thought at times that this whole series feels a bit unrealistic, contrived, deathly devices. Really? Come on. Come on. That's preacher talk. When I was researching for this series, I came across a book published in 2013 called Evil by Design. Interaction Design to Lead Us into Temptation by a man named Chris Nodder. Now, when I first outlined and titled this series, I had never heard of Nodder's work. I discovered it much later, and that discovery was one of those aha moments that reassured me this is indeed an important series. Nodder is an independent consultant formerly a director at the Nielsen Norman Group and a senior user researcher at Microsoft. Evil by Design is a book on approaching persuasive design from the dark side. From the dark side. The book is organized around, get this, the seven deadly sins. In the introduction, Nodder writes this, Designers work hard to control the emotions and behaviors of users. 
truly great websites, good or evil, use specific techniques to get users to perform the desired task time and time again. Success in web design is most often measured in terms of how many users beg to be involved, creating, sharing, commenting, or purchasing. Controlling people's behavior for financial gain is not a new concept. Casinos do it. Politicians do it. Marketers do it. Here, in this book, Notter writes, we consider human foibles, human weaknesses, and the manner in which they can be exploited into the digital age. In other words, Notter is acknowledging that all human beings have these foibles, he calls them, weaknesses, in biblical terms, sinful tendencies within us. And so he says to his fellow designers, let's figure out how to unleash the monster, how to bring him out and offer our benefit. As the blurb on the back cover puts it, now you too can leverage human fallibility. So if you came into the series a bit skeptical, Notter's work is pretty definitive. Proof that our devices and those behind them do indeed seek to cultivate these deathly vices. So with that in mind, let's look at the second vice. Today we're talking about envy. Envy. Now last week as we looked at vainglory, we discovered that though the idea of vainglory is very common in Scripture, the term itself is not. In fact, it's used only one time. Envy as a term is much more common. Look at just a few of the examples, the biblical warnings that we find both in the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Well, that's pungent, isn't it? The smell wafting through your nostrils right now, that's the rotting, envious person. That's what the Bible teaches that envy eventually will rot you. It brings not just spiritual but physical damage. It damages us mentally, emotionally, physically. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. In this famous description of love, Paul helps us better understand love by telling us what love does not do, how it does not behave. And what's first on his list, love does not envy. Love does not burn with these intense negative feelings towards someone else because of his or her success or accomplishments. And then Peter, writing his letter, says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The Apostle Peter says, Put it away. Take it off. Cut off the branch of envy. Why? Because it's dangerous. Do you remember John Owen's comment from last week? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And through you, sin might be killing others. The Bible has all sorts of tragic stories about envy. And they're often 
stories of envy within the context of the family. Sibling envy. Like the one we read earlier in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's a book of first things, including the first murder. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about Cain and Abel, the first two sons of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. If you grew up in church, you know the story. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you, Cain, you must rule over it. And then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his own brother Abel and killed him. Two men, two brothers, young at the time, they go to worship, each bringing an offering to the Lord. The Hebrew construction here is elaborate, emphasizing that Abel went out of his way to please the Lord, to honor the Lord with delight in his heart. He brings the fattest of the firstlings of his flock, the best he had. Cain, on the other hand, he simply goes through the motions of worship. This is nothing more than a, a duty, it's not a delight. And the result is that God looks with favor on Abel and Abel's offering, but not Cain. And that's when envy sets in. Cain begins to envy the approval that his brother Abel has. And very quickly that envy becomes anger, becomes wrath. God tries to tell Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's like a vicious Beast, it wants to pounce on you. Don't let it. You must rule over it. But Cain will not listen. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve has to be talked into sin by the serpent. In Genesis 4, Cain will not be talked out of it. Even by the Lord himself. He doesn't listen. The envy grows, it becomes anger. He murders his own brother. Why? It all starts with envy. It all starts with envy. There's a fictional story from the 4th century about some novice demons who were having a very hard time tempting a faithful monk. They had tried every bait they knew, trying their best to hook this monk, and they just couldn't get him. Resolute he was. So finally the demons, they go back to report their failure to the devil. Ah, the devil says, I see the problem. The problem is you've been far too hard on the monk. Far too hard. Take him news that his brother has just become bishop of Antioch. Take him good news. The demons were a bit surprised by this. Nonetheless, they went and did what the devil told them. 
They delivered the good news to the monk, and at the moment that news arrived, the monk fell into deep, wicked envy. It's the good news, good news for someone else, that got him. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul tells us, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Now, most of us can muster that. That's not the one we tend to have problems with. When someone else is suffering, we can weep with them, all the while secretly giving thanks that it's not us who are suffering. But how do you respond when someone else in your life gets what you want? How do you feel and think and what do you do when your friend gets the scholarship and you don't? When your friend gets the job, the raise, and you don't. When your coworker gets the recognition, and you don't. It's the good news for someone else that can take us sometimes to the darkest places. Envy. So, here's a simple summary of our second vice. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. The envious person grieves over another's good gifts because they seem superior to his or her own. Envy's eye surveys the world, seeing the excellence of others as a personal insult. That's envy. Now, how do our devices cultivate this vice? Let's think about that for a few minutes. There's a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. If you don't know this book, I would highly recommend it. I'll give you a couple of recommendations this morning, especially for those of you that are parents, grandparents. This is one of them. 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, written by a man named Tony Ranke. And here's what Ranke says. He says, we now check our smartphones every 4.3 minutes. Did you hear that? We now check our smartphones every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. Since I got my first iPhone, a smartphone has been within my reach 24-7 to wake me in the morning, to DJ my music library, to entertain me with videos, movies, and live television, to capture my life in digital pictures and video, to allow me to play the latest video games, to guide me down foreign streets when I travel to broadcast my social media and to reassure me every night that it will wake me again as long as I feed it enough electricity. I use my phone to keep our always changing family schedule in real time sync. I used my phone to research, edit, and even write sections of this book. I use my phone for just about everything except phone calls, it seems. I think he's right. We check our smartphones every 4.3 minutes, he says. Oh, the technological tentacles, they have hold of us. That digital vampire has sunk its teeth into us every 4.3 minutes. Whether it's the daily news cycle, viral videos, social media, we can't look away. We're hooked. One other book that will be helpful for you. It's called The TechWise Family. If you have small children, buy this book, The TechWise Family. That author's name is Andy Crouch. 
Andy Crouch took 40 days offline to see what he noticed in himself. No screens of any kind for 40 days. He said the fast from tech was freeing and mostly delightful. But, I will say this, he writes, FOMO, the fear of missing out, is a real thing. What I was most afraid of missing out on was not information, but affirmation. Affirmation. I discovered how attached, maybe even how addicted I was to the small daily dose of reassurance that other people like me, that they follow me. It was sobering. It was sobering how strong the pull was on me. Crouch is honest about his bout with FOMO. Many of us, probably most, struggle with the same thing. What I want you to see is that by using that friendly sounding little acronym FOMO, we have lost sight of what it really is. FOMO is an alias. It's a cover-up for the very thing we're talking about this morning, envy. Dissect the acronym. Get inside of it for a moment and you'll see what I mean. What's at the heart of FOMO? What's at the very core of it? Comparison. Comparison. It's the fear of missing out on what someone else has. Their digital affirmation. Their life, or at least the life that they show me. It's the fear of missing out on what someone else has. It's based on comparison. See, FOMO is actually envy by another name. Envy has this ever-searching eye. Gouge out the eye, you take out the envy. But we live in a time where it's more challenging than ever, I think, to actually gouge out envy's eye because never before have we seen so many and so much. Never before. Think of it like this. When you were in high school, and some of you still are, when you were in high school and you changed classes, you walked the hallway, however often that was, every hour, whatever, when you went through the hallway, that's when you saw everyone. That's when the comparison began. That's what triggered the envy. Today, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of these platforms, they're the new high school hallway, and you never leave. You never leave. Every 4.3 minutes, we're back on the phone. Do you see why we struggle with envy so much these days? Here's one more thing I want you to notice about your own social media communities. I want you to notice the link between who we follow and who we envy. I'll make it personal. I'm not on social media at the moment, and perhaps I'll say more about that later in the series. But when I was on social media, I followed people with whom I had common ground. I followed other pastors, authors, crossfitters, whatever. The problem is, those are the very people I tend to envy. When I hear someone like a Jose stand up here and sing a beautiful song, I don't feel the fire of envy burning within me because I know that's not my gift. But when I hear another pastor give a great sermon, or when I hear of an author who's published another book, 
I feel the fire of envy ignite. Why? Because those are my gifts and I want to be the most gifted. But that's the very people I follow on social media. So you see, we construct these communities that are composed of the very people we're most likely to envy. Do you see the danger? So now, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? How can we fight back against this vice? In closing, I want to give you four practices, spiritual practices, that will counter this particular vice. First, pray your gratitude and contentment. Pray your gratitude and contentment. Remember, envy has an ever-searching eye. It's the eye of comparison. Gouge out the eye, you take out the envy. Maybe we can't completely gouge out the eye, but we can at least close it in prayer. We close our eyes in prayer as an indication that our focus is shifting. When we pray, in those moments we call prayer, we're not looking around at others. We're not envying others. We're focusing on God. We're praising Him for who He is. We're thanking Him for His good gifts that He's bestowed upon us. If in your heart you sense that you are struggling with envy, spend more time in prayer, praying your gratitude and contentment to God. If you struggle to pray, begin journaling your prayers. Begin journaling your gratitude. That's sort of what I gave the children to do this week. Think about the various blessings that God has given you. List out three of them each day. Pray that gratitude. It will help fight against the envy in your heart. Second, practice quiet kindness. Practice quiet kindness. Envy needs the oxygen of comparison to survive. Remember that. Envy needs the oxygen of comparison to survive. So, kill the envy by stopping all of the posting of the good things you do in your life. Here's how this works. Envy requires balancing scales. It's all about, look at what this person has done, look at what I have done. Get rid of both. Stop spending so much time looking at the accomplishments of others online and stop posting your own. There is such a thing as quiet kindness. You can do loving deeds and not post about them. Jesus actually speaks very highly of that. Listen to the talk from last week and you'll see what I mean. Third, participate in ministry teams. Envy is all about competition. The envious person sees the world as a competition. What they've done or accomplished versus what I've done or accomplished. So one of the best things you can do to fight envy in your heart is cooperate with others. Don't compete against them. Cooperate with them. Join a ministry team. Join the praise band, even if you're not the best musician on stage. Together, the team will make beautiful music. Cooperate rather than competing. Fourth and finally, most important of all, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. The envy within us, it's related 
to some feeling of inadequacy in our own hearts. I feel like I'm not seen. I'm not known. Not as much as that person. There's an inadequacy in my own heart there. So in a way, our envy is related to our vainglory that we talked about last week. Tony Ranke, one of those authors that I mentioned earlier, he tells the story from one of his family vacations. He says that one time his family was on vacation, I forget where, and he and his son took a day trip to hike. And on this hike, they found a beautiful waterfall, 25-foot waterfall. It was such a perfect spot, they decided to spend the whole day there. So there they were enjoying themselves. But about midday, the sun, it was just beating down on them, and they were burning up. And so Ranky's teenage son came to him and said, Dad, can I climb to the top of this cliff and jump off the waterfall into the pond below? And Ranky said, no, no, the, the water's too dark. We can't see what's below the surface. You'll break your neck. Absolutely not. A few hours go by. A van pulls up to the top of the cliff. Two construction workers get out covered in asphalt. They strip down to their shorts and they leap off the waterfall, landing safely in the pond below. Then they climb back up and they do the same thing again. Ranky's son witnesses all of it. So he goes back to his dad and he says, Dad, now we know it's safe. Can I jump off the waterfall? And as Ranky is relaying this story, he says, I could sense in that moment that a sermon illustration was being born. He said to his son, okay, fine. You can jump off the waterfall, one condition. We're not going to film it. We're not going to film it. Just jump, enjoy the thrill of the jump, but no one will film it and no one will post it on social media. And immediately his son threw his hands up and said, well, then what's the point? What's the point? Not just our teenage children. Not just them. All of us have within us this deep desire to be seen. To be known. We want to do whatever it takes to grab someone's attention. Jump off a waterfall or whatever it takes. It's ingrained within us. But listen to me, the gospel declares that you are known. You are seen. You don't have to do something spectacular to grab hold of God's attention. God has already done something spectacular to show you just how much attention you already have. He sent his son for you. He knows you. You have unconditional love. Get this. You have non-comparative value. God's not sitting in heaven comparing you to someone else. When you fail and that other person succeeds, it does not change God's love for you not one bit. You have unconditional love. You have non-comparative value. Preach that message to yourself again. And again and again. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. This good news that you love us. You have demonstrated that love already by sending your son Jesus to die for us. We don't need to do something spectacular to grab hold of your attention. We already have it. On our best days and on our worst, you love us. 
Thank you for that. Search our hearts this morning, God. Convict us where we need to be convicted of our envy. Show us the things, the practices in our daily lives that are cultivating that envy. And give us the strength to cut out as much of that as we can. By the power of your spirit within us and guiding us with your word, we ask you to change us, making us more like your son Jesus in all that we do, not comparing ourselves to others, cooperating with others, rejoicing, giving thanks for the countless good gifts that you've bestowed upon us. We need your help in this, God. It's a constant battle. I know it is in my heart. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.